Marcus Pittman is a, a gentleman whom I had the pleasure of meeting when we, when we were over in America. Um, he is a, a film producer and is currently producing a, um, a media empire, I guess you could say, um, which aims to, to combat uh, the likes of you know, Netflix and that sort of business with a, a thoroughly biblical world-viewed platform for, for Christians and others to participate in. Uh, but he was interviewed recently on a, a late night, <coughs> excuse me, a late night talk show. Um, and one of the things he said, and I'm about to use the word conservative, but he did quite explicitly talk about um, the biblical worldview as well. So I'm not merely talking politically. Um, he was interviewed on this late night talk show. Uh, and he said, one of the problems which uh, conservatives have is that we tend to convey uh, our, our message in cold, hard facts and we tend to convey it into the echo chamber of people who already believe what we believe. Uh, and so it kind of bolsters us and sounds good, um, but maybe doesn't go into the world and, and change the world as perhaps we would uh, desire. Uh, and he said, then he related it to say the stories of, the true stories I should add, um, of, of Moses and such. And he says that part of the, uh, the nature and the goodness of these things is not only that they're true, but the fact that they use stories and art as a means of, of displaying that message, and I guess of drawing in the, the heart and the mind of those who would hear, those who would read, uh, those who would participate in the message. Um, and hence, he says, you know, because uh, progressives and the secularists have oftentimes used uh, stories in order to convey their worldview. You've seen a, a great shift in the, uh, the pattern and the thinking of the world to that direction. Uh, and perhaps it's something which conservatives, and indeed, as I said, he's a film producer, so he's readily involved in the arts. Um, perhaps it's something which conservatives should, should pick up upon. And as I said, not just those who are politically conservative, uh, but, but Christians. Um, perhaps we can better use uh, stories and art as a means of conveying uh, the gospel message. Uh, and certainly, you may be wondering where I was going with that, but Daniel uh, is, is a thing which, well, especially for the first uh, six or so chapters, um, is filled with uh, story, is filled with narrative, uh, and it captures the hearts and the minds of those who would read it, those who would uh, participate it in whatever form. Uh, and of course, we, we readily point to the examples of, of the lion's den and, and such like that, that you know, our, even as children, our, our heads readily go to when we sort of understand the message. Um, so the, the book of Daniel, as I say, is a wonderful means of story that conveys worldview, it conveys message, uh, it conveys uh, all these good things. And hopefully, uh, it's a means that the Lord can use uh, even today to move us forward in our, in our Christian understanding. Um, with that being said, uh, I'm not one to say that the, the Sunday sermon is a, a time for all sitting around on Uncle Tobias' lap and, and engaging in story time. Um, stories are perhaps um, a useful means uh, during a sermon um, of uh, illustrating, of complementing the main point of the text, but uh, definitely I would be one to say that the, the text is what we should be involved in as opposed to, as I say, story time with Uncle Tobias. Um, so in, in very, very high level um, <coughs> summary, 
uh, indeed, as Tom has just read, um, chapter 2 uh, talks about King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, the inability of what I'll call his occultists um, to interpret it. Daniel interprets the dream and is subsequently promoted. There's your very, very high-level uh, summary. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, the ability to, again, to be here today, the, the reading of your word which has already occurred. Uh, and Lord, please use me, uh, a weak vessel, to, uh, to bless your people, um, to, to promote uh, ideas and, and worldviews which are thoroughly grounded in your word. And as I've often prayed and will pray again, Lord, get me out of the way and simply speak to your people. Nourish them uh, by the, the reading and the preaching of your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My usual pattern, uh, as you would be aware, is to, to sort of read a, a verse or a section uh, and then to go through it. Uh, because of the, the length of what we're going to go through today, uh, I won't follow that same pattern. Um, the text has been read for us already, and certainly I'll mention verses as we go through, but I won't read the entirety uh, of each section prior to going through it. Um, but the, the first section I, I have my, my eyes set upon uh, are verses 1 to 16. And in a, a slightly less high-level summary, you have Nebuchadnezzar, who has his first dream, uh, and he summons the, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, or the occultists as I've called them, assigning them to tell him the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar, in very reasonable form, I'm sure, is angry that no one can tell him his dream and the interpretation. Uh, so he decrees that all the wise men, as the text calls them, uh, in Chaldea be destroyed. And this includes Daniel and his companions. And just by way of admin, in case you're not aware, Chaldea is synonymous with Babylon. And so you'll see the two words in both Daniel and elsewhere in the Bible, uh, same place. Daniel subsequently, uh, and I, I'm struck by how, how level-headed the text seems to have him uh, as he makes this request. But he, he just, when the uh, Ariok comes basically to promote his execution, uh, he subsequently says, you know, make me a time to come before the king. Just apparently very plainly, full of faith in the Lord. Make me a time to come before the king. I'll tell him the dream and its interpretation. Uh, so Daniel requests that time to come before the king. Moving into a little more detail. One of the things is I looked at the, the very first verse, which is perhaps readily apparent. It says, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and it goes on from there. And I thought that the second year of Nebuchadnezzar and if you'll hearken back to chapter 1, verse 5, uh, you'll notice that it says the king, Nebuchadnezzar, assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. So Dan, uh, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar uh, takes over this nation and he, he gets these exiles and he says, all right, here's the, the cream of the crop. We're going to educate you for, for three years. And then in the second year of this reign is when this whole episode happens with Daniel. That to say that this is in, I guess you'd say, the, the infant stages of Daniel's Babylonian education program. 
the Lord sets apart Daniel even from an early stage. And the, the point perhaps to draw from that is that outward circumstances do not limit the Lord. Uh, and I was reminded e even earlier this week um, in a, uh, with a similar principle that Paul says to Timothy to, to let no one look down on you for your youth being another application of that same principle. The Lord is not limited by outward circumstances. Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel even in this second year of his reign, of, his, of Daniel's education program, and the Lord works mightily through him to reveal a dream which nobody could naturally know and to subsequently even reveal the interpretation and then for, for Daniel essentially to be made like the prime minister of the entirety of Babylon. What's more, Daniel was not among those who initially met with the king, with King Nebuchadnezzar, I should say, whereby the occultists, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, to show him the dream and interpret it. And when they couldn't do so, ordered their, his execution. Now, I joked before that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in very reasonable form, uh, ordered their execution, whereby they couldn't tell him the, the interpretation or the dream. But really, it's, of course, the exact opposite. This is an entirely unreasonable request of a human. How would it be possible for any human to know the dream of another human, let alone to interpret it? Now, I like to think that I know uh, my wife pretty well, and, and I know um, most of, if not all, of what's going on in her life. And so perhaps I could have a pretty good poke at what she might dream about at night. But I certainly couldn't know for certain. And I couldn't reveal uh, the, the meanings and all of the reasonings behind why she dreams what she dreams. And if I couldn't do that in the closest of relationships, what hope has someone who really doesn't have that much of a direct relationship with a person at all have of knowing what they dream about and subsequently revealing the interpretation thereof, especially when this dream appears to be uh, something which is uh, prophetic and, and mysterious in nature. And King Nebuchadnezzar uh, orders the execution of those who weren't even there to accomplish this impossible task. In the most immediate context, he, he draws uh, apparently a portion of the wise men, of the occultists, uh, to himself to, to reveal the dream and its interpretation. Uh, but Daniel and his companions, at least in my reading of the text, uh, appear to have not been a part of that group. So it's an impossible task to start with, and subsequently uh, Nebuchadnezzar orders the execution of those who weren't even there to accomplish this impossible task. Verses 12 and 13 say, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought out Daniel and his companions to kill them. But one thing uh, sticks out to me in particular about this first section, and it's, uh, I guess, my summary point um, that I'm, I'm heading towards. The Babylonian or the Chaldean occultists note in verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. You might say they were, they were this close, 
but they were just off. Not the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, but the God whose dwelling is not with flesh. Indeed, as Daniel himself says in verses 27 and 28, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So not the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, but the God. He is the one who is able to make known the mystery and its interpretation. So the point. Do not seek that which only comes from God amongst the counterfeit of the world. Now keep your, uh, your finger in Daniel 2, uh, but turn with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I'm there, so you should be. Uh, the immediate context of, uh, of the, this uh, section in Daniel is the, the context of supernatural knowledge. Nebuchadnezzar is seeking, uh, seeking such supernatural knowledge uh, from the counterfeit of the world. But leaders of the modern day uh, do a similar thing when they try to, to run or uh, to engage in whatever their authoritative sphere is, absent of the knowledge of God and absent of a biblical worldview or even the very text of Scripture itself. Suppose I were to say to you, all right, tomorrow you're to be inaugurated as the Prime Minister or indeed with the, the Queen passing recently, for whatever reason Charles isn't going to be involved, you're going to be uh, the monarch. You are going to be the leader of the United Kingdom. And I were to say to you, all right, that's, that's your charge, but you're to do this absent of the text of Scripture and absent of a biblical worldview. Subsequently, you would, you would seek knowledge from, I guess, yourself, your co-workers, your advisors, that can only come from the true God. So Daniel's most immediate context is, uh, in the, the supernatural knowledge that Nebuchadnezzar is seeking from the occultists, but a, a similar principle applies in leaders who attempt to run their authoritative sphere absent of the biblical worldview. It ought not to be done. And it's clearly seen, perhaps in even more direct application, uh, in folks who engage in, in fortune-telling, horoscopes, astrology, uh, etc., uh, one article I read in preparation for this sermon said that the, the astrology or the, the mysterious services industry is worth $2.2 billion, which is a tidy sum for an industry that is not worth 2.2 cents. Those who practice and listen to the words of such folks in the modern day, and Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's day, uh, need to heed the words of Deuteronomy 18, where... No doubt you're at by now. Uh, verse, starting from verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, 
And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So even by principle of a text like this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign was only to last so long because the Lord casts out and judges uh, those who would practice such things. And so the point once again, do not seek that which only comes from God amongst the counterfeit in the world. Second section, verses 17 to 24. And again, the fairly high level summary. Uh, Daniel brings the situation before his three friends. God reveals the dream and the interpretation to Daniel and Daniel praises God, rightly so. And Daniel requests Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, to bring him before the king to show the dream's interpretation. In a bit more detail. What I perhaps alluded to before is again striking. After having asked for an appointment with the king to show him the interpretation in verse 16, then Daniel confers with his companions. So firstly, he has the, the level-minded uh, faith in the Lord to say, the, the Lord's going to reveal this thing to me. I'll very uh, level-headedly request a, a time to meet before Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but after having done that, he then goes and confers with his friends to, to ask them to pray um, that the Lord would reveal such a thing to him. Or perhaps it is that Daniel trusts so much in the Lord's sovereignty and in, and in the Lord's goodness that even if God should not reveal the dream to him, he nonetheless knows that the Lord is good. Nonetheless, Daniel's faith is in the Lord and his, his trust is in the fact that God is good. But put yourself in, in, the, in the feet of Daniel here, in the shoes of Daniel. When faced with death, when faced with imminent death, that Arioch was there to bring about his execution, when faced with death, Daniel trusts in God. He did what the Israelites failed to do at Meribah and Massah, translated rebellion and testing, when the Israelites, having been faithfully and miraculously delivered from Egypt, were faced with a situation of having no water. They then, they quarreled, they complained, they tested the Lord, they rebelled against him. Daniel does the opposite of that. He trusts in the Lord, regardless of what the outcome might be, he trusts in the Lord in that circumstance. And so the point, just a quick one for those verses. When faced with situations of great dieness, urgency, we can entrust ourselves to the sovereignty, the power, the wisdom, and the steadfast love of our God. We can entrust ourselves to his character and ability to carry out his will. It doesn't necessarily uh, always mean that the outcome would be pleasant, uh, but nonetheless, it guarantees that God's will would be done and, and trusts in his goodness. Verses 25 to 30. Daniel is brought in haste, verse 25, before Nebuchadnezzar and notes that no man could make known the interpreta interpretation of the dream, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
Verse 30, following on from that, reads, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel in this moment has the opportunity to claim credit for himself. Nebuchadnezzar already thinks he's, he's quite something. He has the opportunity to, to seek credit for himself. He, Nebuchadnezzar probably doesn't know that uh, Daniel has requested this time to come in front of him. Uh, he's, he's gone away. He's prayed. The Lord's revealed uh, the dream and the interpretation to him. Daniel could just come before him claiming the same uh, power as the, the fellow occultists and say, here is my wisdom and present it before him. Daniel's humility, or perhaps can we say his, his seeking to live in godly ways more broadly is particularly notable uh, and is somewhat reminiscent of King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. The Lord says to, to King Solomon, what shall I give you? you know, I'll, I'll give you something. What, what shall I give you as king over my kingdom? And rather than requesting uh, riches or honor or fame or anything else, Solomon seeks to live in godly ways and requests God's wisdom. It's not an exactly the same thing, but you see nonetheless, both in the case of Daniel and in the case of Solomon, rather than seeking uh, worldly good, rather than seeking uh, credit or, or uh, worldly goods and fame and whatnot, they seek to honor God. They seek to do uh, that which is foundationally right. And in both cases, the Lord uh, blesses them with the things which they hadn't sought after anyways. Solomon and Daniel, in summary, both had the opportunity to claim worldly good for themselves, but instead they seek to honor God and they are blessed by God for it. So your summary point, blessing ensues or is given from living in godly ways in all areas of life. And as what I hope is an appropriate proof text for that, I would just say to you, See the entirety of the book of Proverbs. Get the general vibe of that, and that point comes across. Uh, next section, verses 31 to 45. Daniel describes, and I've got to say that I, I, I love this section, so I hope I don't get too nerdy for you. Uh, but Daniel describes the great image and the fact that a stone cut by no human hand, verse 34, struck the image and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, verse 35. Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. Now, no names of nations are mentioned at this particular point, uh, but just that the different parts of the image represent different kingdoms. Daniel notes that in the days of the iron and clay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Uh, read with me, if you will, uh, verses 32 to 35. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We can learn from, from later on in Daniel uh, and arguably from a, a look through history um, now that we have hindsight. The head of gold is, is Nebuchadnezzar, is, is Babylon. The chest and arms of silver represents Medo-Persia. The middle and thighs of bronze are Greece. The legs of iron are Rome and the, the feet partly of iron and partly of clay uh, are Rome in a, a revived form. Uh, with the strength of iron mixed with the, the brittleness of clay, perhaps the, the human weakness of clay. And the bit which I, I must say I love the most, and I'm sure we would say yes and amen to this, uh, the stone cut out by no human hand being Christ's kingdom, uh, which is said to come here during the time of Rome. Uh, and I love you know, sections of scripture like this. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about putting meat on things. You know, we can read sections of scripture like this, and, and at the time, of course, it had uh, meaning and, uh, and it was worthy of paying attention to. In hindsight, we look back and we can see uh, the rise and the fall of these kingdoms, and we can take great hope that uh, just as these kingdoms rose and they fell, so what it says about Christ's kingdom coming during the time of Rome and subsequently spreading from there we can take great hope in the truth of this having happened and occurring, uh, indeed, as the other prophecies uh, occurred and were fulfilled. Verses 43 to 45 say, As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall happen after this. The dream is 75% sure. It might happen in the future. No, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. And that, I hope, for us living here uh, in 2022 is something that we can take great hope in. The dream is certain. It really did occur, and King Nebuchadnezzar goes on to confirm that. Its interpretation that the Lord has given Daniel is sure. Christ's kingdom really did come. Jesus came from heaven to earth during the time of Rome. And this text says that he, he set up his kingdom at that time to become a great mountain that would be uh, viewable, knowable from the whole of the earth that would never be taken away by another monarch, by another ruler. It would never be displaced. So you, uh, sitting in the seats there today and me standing here, we live in the age of the kingdom of the stone. Christ came during the time of the Roman Empire, as I said, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. Tracy and I 
started, we didn't finish, but we started watching a, a documentary recently. And, and one of the things uh, that the documentary did, it had an animation of uh, a world map and it showed the, the spread of various uh, empires and also uh, one or two religions, or I guess you could say empires uh, as well. And you could see uh, the, the spread of Christianity occurring uh, and it you know, keeps spreading and keeps spreading. And occasionally there would be the, these other empires which would pop up and they'd spread quite rapidly and you'd sort of, uh, in your, your quick emotional state, you'd think, oh, maybe they're going to overtake the, the spread of Christianity. But they'd, you know, they spread wildly and then bam, they'd be gone. But the spread of, of, of Christianity, of Christ's kingdom, of the kingdom of the stone over the course of history is really quite remarkable. Uh, and so at times we're tempted to be uh, very, very short-sighted. And we think, you know, right here in, in Canberra in 2022, it seems like we live in a fairly godless society. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Canberra wasn't included in, in this text. You know, it was meant for everywhere else except uh, here in Canberra, here in Australia, here in the West, whatever you might say. But if you take a, a more macro view across the world, even in 2022, you see nonetheless Christ's kingdom going forth. You see him putting all his enemies under his feet as he rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father. You see this demonstrating itself throughout uh, history even today. And if you go even more macro than that over the, the course of history throughout the world, you definitely get that impression. So I guess my encouragement to, to us would be, Yes, we, we live here and God has put us here for a reason, uh, but to, to not despair that our immediate context uh, is the, the governing factor of the whole of history. In complement to these verses, uh, whereby the, the stone smashes all these other kingdoms, uh, is Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, uh, which of course uh, addresses the Messiah. It says, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations, all of the world, and everything in it belong to God, and he is winning his victory over them with Jesus, the victorious Messiah, ruling and reigning at his right hand. And so the point, God in his perfect sovereignty has been faithful to bring about the fulfillment of this prophecy here in Daniel. In application of that, I have, I guess you say, two further points. And one is that a rhetorical question. Do you believe, again, sitting here in the in the seats today, do you believe that just as these nations have risen and fallen fulfilling the prophecy, so it is true that Christ's kingdom has been established, a great mountain to fill the whole earth, which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people? Do you believe it? And secondly, in application, and I, I alluded to this before, um, this is... We ought to, to let our theology, when we read the scripture, when we, uh, by the grace of God, interpret it correctly, when we read the scripture, when we interpret it correctly, 
Our theology, therefore, ought to rule our practice and our experience as opposed to our practice and our experience ruling our theology. And hence, when we look into the world and if we think it's all going to a hell in a handbasket, we ought to revert back to our theology. If we really believe uh, what this passage says, then we don't then lose that by virtue of looking into the world in our practice and our experience and seeing the world going to hell in a handbasket or whatever phrase you might like to use. This is not saying that uh, the two things are, are divorced from one another and are at odds with one another. It is, in fact, saying that the, the theology, uh, if it's come rightly from the scripture, is the governing factor. It is the truth. The way we interpret the society around us and our experience may be counter from the truth. We need what the Lord says about society to be the governing factor. I told you I like that section. Um, verses 46 to 49, and uh, just uh, a few more words. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed that God has revealed such things to Daniel and praises God. Daniel subsequently is promoted and requests his companions to be promoted also. Now, what's, um, it's sort of like a bit of a, an anti-climax here. Nebuchadnezzar gives what you might say is a, a theologically accurate word of praise to God after having committed idolatry. He, uh, in, in verse, let's read it, in fact. Uh, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. There's kind of the killjoy. The king answered and said to Daniel, and this is the good pit, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. That, of course, is, is accurate and good, uh, regrettable that it comes right after a moment of idolatry. And that, along with Nebuchadnezzar's subsequent creation of his golden image in chapter 3, uh, are one of a few instances in this book where Nebuchadnezzar seems to worship God, and you sort of think, great! Um, but then he reverts back into his old ways. And though this section, uh, inclusive of Daniel's promotion, is, is descriptive, it describes what happens, rather than prescriptive, rather than saying, this is what you ought to do, uh, it nonetheless shows the biblical principle that, and this is the point, living in God's world whilst pursuing God's ways results in God's blessing, which sometimes, though not always, manifests itself in tangible, worldly, not in the bad sense, ways. So living in God's world whilst pursuing God's ways results in God's blessing. And so that was... Um, a decently lengthed section of scripture that we've sort of dived headlong in today. Um, I hope you don't mind me just uh, recounting the, the basic points um, that I, I drew out. Firstly, do not seek that which only comes from God amongst the counterfeit in the world. Secondly, when faced with situations of great urgency and direness, we can trust ourselves, we can entrust, I should say, ourselves to the sovereignty, power, wisdom, and steadfast love of our God. We can entrust ourselves to his character and ability to carry out his will. Thirdly, blessing ensues or is given from living in godly ways in all areas of life. 
Fourthly, God in his perfect sovereignty has been faithful to bring about the fulfillment of this prophecy. The application then being, do you believe that uh, Christ's kingdom is being fulfilled in the same way? Fifthly and lastly, living in God's world whilst pursuing God's ways results in God's blessing. At times, uh, this occurs in, in tangible worldly ways. Again, worldly, not in the bad sense. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this section of scripture. Thank you that you have seen fit to record uh, so much scripture for us to engage in. Uh, and Lord, I, I pray uh, that we would uh, entrust ourselves to you regardless of the, the outward circumstances. That we would, Lord, not despise um, the aspects of weakness in us, but rather that we would see those as an opportunity for you to all the more display your glory. I pray that uh, for all that I've said, which is good, Lord, that you would minister to your people. And if there be anything, God, that was not of you, that it would simply uh, blow away and, and be not known. Indeed, as these nations uh, that you have prophesied about um, are described as in this text. Lord, glorify your name as we continue to, to minister together, as we sing to you uh, and as we consider you in our conversations uh, and in the rest of this time. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.